would ask you to turn with me to the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 18, as we have entered into the account that John gives of the passion narrative, our Lord Jesus, and the events that ultimately lead to his crucifixion. We've looked at the first couple of um, scenes. Um, We looked at the scene in the Garden of Eden after an introductory message about the passion and in, in general. We looked at the garden, the garden arrest of our Lord, taken into captivity. Uh, A little bit of overkill on the part of the leaders, bringing an army of people against someone who goes willingly, doesn't offer any resistance, although Peter did endeavor to cut off the right ear of Malchus, the uh, servant of the high priest. But Jesus said, sheathe your sword. And he does this amazing thing. He heals the, the right ear of the high priest's servant. And then the soldiers lead our Lord Jesus away. And they lead him to the house of the high priest bound and though there's no account of the trial that comes before Caiaphas comes before the Sanhedrin the law court of the Jews that ultimately uh, made sentence upon him there is a reference to an interview with Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas he also is the patriarch of a whole uh, a succession of priests. Uh, five of his six sons actually served in the priesthood. He himself served in the priesthood for some ten years. Earlier on, a couple of years after the birth of Jesus, he was placed in the high priesthood by an emperor by the name of Tiberius. And then after some ten years, he was succeeded again by others who were close relations. And so he had a sort of a patriarchal position. I mean, high priests always remained high priests. Once you're a high priest, you're a high priest for life, whether you served in the office or not. And so he's given the dignity of being a high priest by name, but also by reputation, also by association with other high priests, all of his family members. But you see the picture is that Jesus is led off to the priest's house. Peter follows, Matthew tells us at a distance, and follows to go into the courtyard of the high priest. And so the next scenes really have to do with what happened inside the house, on the one hand, and also out in the courtyard, on the other hand, except the gospel writers give it to us in a different order. As we saw Matthew and Mark give us the picture of the, of the denial of Peter first, of the three denials of Peter, and then moves into the inner, um, the, the inside of uh, the priest's house as Jesus came before uh, Caiaphas. Um, Luke changes the order. Luke gives us the trial first and then gives us the denial of Peter outside. But all agree, stuff is happening outside, stuff is happening inside, and Peter follows uh, the guards leading Jesus along and uh, at a distance, and they both move into different directions. But now, John's concerned to take the things that happened inside the house and the things that happened in the courtyard and merge them together in our thinking. Because what he does is he presents us with Peter's first denial, and then moves inside. So we're out in the courtyard first. Then we move inside, and then we hear what uh, the questioning of Jesus. Actually, Jesus' questioning of them, as it turns out. And then we move back outside. We move back outside to the courtyard for the final two denials of, of Peter. And 
That's called sandwiching. <laughs> the denials of Peter are sandwich pieces of the bread on either side, and within is what happened inside in the courtyard. And John does that to move these two events together simultaneously in our thinking. So we think of the way in which Peter conducted himself when he was questioned by servants and how Jesus responded when he was questioned by the high priests. And we saw last week that Peter learns a very vital lesson in all this in that he shows how Christians ought to enter into suffering. What happens when you're taken into captivity or even arrested? Now, Peter wasn't arrested, but he could have been, and he was fearing that. I mean, there's a sense in which, in the face of Jesus' failure to fight and willingly to give himself up to his captors, the fight seemed to be all out of Peter. He loves Jesus. He's concerned about what's going to happen to Jesus. But in a real sense, at this point, he's simply in survival mode. Why should he be risking arrest or death when everything seems lost? Jesus capitulated. He was aiming for a fight. He, took a, he unsheathed the sword. He cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. He was ready to keep hacking. He was ready to fight to death. But no fight occurred. Jesus quells any effort to resist, gives himself up willingly, takes the way of the lamb. As the lamb went to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. And Peter learned when he writes that second letter that it is a grace given by God to suffer for his name. And he says, Jesus suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. When he was threatened, he didn't respond. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's what we see in Jesus before his accusers. What we see in Peter is a man filled with cursing and bitterness. A man that's just out for himself. A man has lost all sense of where God is in the midst of this situation. He just wants to get out alive. Now he'd love to save Jesus, but Jesus is the only one who could save himself, and he's not willing. He's not willing. Now the scene that's painted for us in these gospel records all have a different point of view. They all bring us to see these events uh, really from different interests. Every one of these writers has their own concerns to present the story of Jesus in a way that is consistent with what they want us to know about Jesus. So we have to make it clear what we understand these Gospels to be. I'm reading a biography of Ulysses S. Grant, the 18th President of the United States, the general of the Northern Armies that defeated Lee and the armies of Northern Virginia, Appomattox Courthouse, you all know the story of the Civil War and the great general that led our armies in victory over the supposedly great general of the South, Robert E. Lee. How Lee came out to the Civil War with a greater reputation than Grant, I simply don't know. Just a lot of propaganda. I know he was deemed to be a drunk, but he really wasn't. My point is, I got a 700-page book to read on the subject of U.S. Grant and his life. 
And it goes into exhausting detail about everything that was ever said about Grant, every charge that was ever made, what type of a man he was, how he reacted to criticism, how he led the armies, how he put together strategy. I mean, Ron Charnow has put together a book that, if it doesn't answer all the questions, it at least raises them, and it answers a great many of them. And it's done with precision. It's done with detail. It's done with asking almost anything you'd like to know about you U.S. Grant, down to what kind of foods did he like, what kind of clothes did he wear, what was his appearance before others, who were his friends, what did he do in his days in Washington as president, did you know that he took off and just walked the streets of Washington without a guard, without an escort, without the Secret Service, just years after Lincoln was assassinated, he was walking the streets without much of a guard, amazing stuff that Charnow brings out about the life of, of U.S. Grant. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of biography about Jesus? To know what kind of foods he liked? To know what things made him laugh? To know how he spent his downtime when he wasn't ministering? You know, he prayed. But I mean, we're told these things just in little statements that are so brief in their focus. It doesn't go into detail, even about the crucifixion. They took him out and they crucified him, as we're told. We're not told details about it. I just told you, they took him out and they crucified him. You fill in the details. If you know anything about Roman crucifixion, you know what they did to Jesus. Just as they scourged him. They didn't go into detail. How, what was Roman scourging like? Because you see, the purpose of these Gospels is not to answer all the questions we might have about everything that took place in every instance in Jesus' life. Its concern is to bring us to faith in Jesus is to present Jesus in such a way that John says you will believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you'd have life in his name. So it doesn't answer all of our questions. It just gives us little brief cameos, little brief snapshots of the things that occurred. And sometimes the things that they tell us are things that we find it hard to put their accounts together. But You know, I think they would be perfectly harmonious if we knew all the details. We don't know all the details. We just know little bits of snapshots. And each writer is looking to give it from his own perspective of the things that he wants to say. Luke emphasizes the women. Because women take up a good part of his gospel other than John 16. I'm sorry, Romans 16. I think he mentions women more than anybody else in um, any other passage of the Bible. Women are just come to the fore as those that are assisted in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the widow of Nain, he tells us about. No other gospel tells us about that. Elizabeth and Mary, of course, in, ex- in the birth narratives of uh, Anna in the temple. Uh, uh, many women come before our attention. Even women from the Old Testament, how Elijah was sent up to um, Zarephath to uh, take care of the widow uh, there and her son. Um, many widows were in Israel at the time, but to none of them was Elijah sent, but to you know, this uh, foreign woman. And so that's what Luke's about. And so he'll tell, tell the story, he's sort of consistent. And you know, it doesn't tell us in the Gospels, well, what was the place of women? Um, you know, sometimes you see a woman that seems to be asking the questions, and sometimes a similar thing, and perhaps a man enters in in one of the accounts. Well, you know, if you understood the role of women, it would not necessarily be that the women would be the one, even if she had the concern. Let's say you're a woman sitting in the courtyard, and you said, I think I know that man. I think he might be one of Jesus' disciples. I think you better, you better question him. It probably wouldn't have been her place to do that. 
And she might have spoken through a man. And one of the gospel writers might have said, well, she's the one that took the initiative. And Jesus got questioned because of her. And so you see the, the female aspect of it, but she's standing right next to a guy who's actually doing the interrogating. He's actually asking the question. I think it's particularly true because John tells us that one of the women that met, Jesus, that met Peter in the first denial is said to be the gatekeeper. Is said to be the gatekeeper or the doorkeeper, depending on your, your translation. When you come into the courtyard of the high priest, there was a gate. And there was usually a servant that was assigned for the purpose of making sure nobody came in who was unauthorized. Only allow people in who have a business with the high priest, who have a reason to come in. And Peter clearly would not have had any reason to come into the gate. But he was not alone. And he's the only gospel that tells us in verse 15 of chapter 18 that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. It's the only gospel that tells us that Peter didn't follow Jesus from a distance alone. Peter followed Jesus from a distance with another disciple who was with him. And you see, this disciple was known to the high priest. And he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And nobody flagged him and said, he's one of his disciples. No, he was known to the high priest. Particularly if we identify this other disciple of Jesus as likely the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because he's often paired together with Peter. I won't go into all the passages that show that. But you look at the mentions of the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Peter is um, a factor in most of these cases. And sometimes he's just called another disciple. As he is here, he's called another disciple. It may well have been the author of this book who was actually in the courtyard. He was known to the high priest and he was allowed in. And Peter stood outside the door. And so the one who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And he was the one that brought Peter in. Yet the servant girl is still responsible to make sure nobody's in this place but who's authorized. And it may have been the other disciples say so. He was known to the high priest, but you know, she sort of smells a rat. She's, she wants to figure this thing out. And um, perhaps it's not likely she would have been going to Peter her, herself. She might have gone through one of the soldiers. Again, we don't know. That's the point I'm getting at. Is that the way they tell the story is bringing forward the minor figures just in a way that moves the story along. Because the major concern is not to say, well, of course, you know, in ancient days, women would not be so forward as to be the one to actually question. She'd just be the one to observe and to make certain that no one who's unauthorized is in the courtyard. And she would go to one of the guards. She would go to one of the men and confront the man. And so that's how you see the accounts um, being harmonious. If we knew all the ins and the outs, which we don't know. Again, that's just guessing. It's just saying. It could have been this way. It could have been that way. could have been a number of different ways. But Peter is brought in because of another disciple, known to the high priest, and is able to come in the courtyard. We see a picture of him standing at the door. We say in the other gospel writers, he is at a fire warming himself, which is also included in the account. And the point is that in all of these accounts, there is marvelous harmony, harmony, marvelous agreement that's there. 
There may be a different order presented, but all the basic facts are there. And again, as I said in the reading earlier, uh, when you have everything just the same as every other account, usually the answer is people have been colluding. There's no collusion here. These are independent witnesses giving their testimony or their understanding of what others have testified of as Luke looked into these things, he says, with great care to know the things that are surely believed among us. So have confidence in these Gospels. They're not telling you, um, you know, I've heard people say, I've heard people say to me, oh, they can't get this thing right. Who did he, what, was the, what was the order of the events? Uh, well, how can we trust them for anything else if they can't get that right? Well, they did get this right. They just didn't all get it in the same exact order, but they all got the same basic facts. So that, And again, the point is what it tells us about Jesus, what this tells us about Jesus. And that's where I want to go this morning and the rest of our time together. Is You see Peter denying Jesus three times. He denies him in the midst, not of cowardice, so often it's said he was simply a coward. He's despondent. He's despairing. He's just confused as to why Jesus took the course he did. It wasn't any part of his messianic expectations. He was supposed to go into war for Jesus. He was supposed to be valiant for Jesus. He was all prepared to do that. He was prepared to be arrested. He was prepared to die in battle for the sake of Jesus. When he said, I will go with you to prison or to death, he meant it. But in his mind, Jesus was going to fight the same fight. And now this is a different kind of fight that Jesus is in. A different kind of war that Jesus is fighting. And Peter just isn't, doesn't understand it. Is he going to give up his liberty for something he doesn't get? Something he doesn't quite understand? So in the midst of his confusion, he's filled with this, again, this, um, this survival mode. Just looking to protect himself until he can figure it all out. Until he gets further light on the matter. But why does he fail to confess Jesus? I think if somebody came up to him and said, Peter, who is Jesus? I wonder what he would have said. You know, or earlier in this gospel, uh, when Jesus said to him, will you also go away? His answer was, to whom else shall we go, Lord? You only have the words of eternal life. He says, we've come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Does he still know that? Does he still believe that? Well, likely he does. He hasn't given up altogether. In love, he continues to follow Jesus. But yet, as he's not so much questioned about Jesus' identity, but he's questioned about his own identity. Are you one of his disciples? It's at that point he denies. He denies. And this is in contrast to Jesus, who when he comes before the high priest is perfectly clear as to who he is, perfectly clear as to his own identity. In fact, he tells his questioners, it should be clear to you. It should be clear to you. Verse 19 says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And again, we're not told what, what questions did he ask. What did he ask about his disciples? What did he ask about his teaching? Again, it's very general. 
But yet Jesus' response is a response that simply indicates that Jesus is clear on the question of his identity that these people, if they had any real desire to know, could easily have known. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. Came to the, in, into the world and the world received him not. But he came into the world to manifest himself to others. He came to his own people. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? You can know. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. The problem is they knew altogether what he had said, but they had already made the judgment they would put him to death. That they needed to be rid of him. It's expedient that one man should die than that the whole nation not perish. That's what they that's what they said. But Jesus is clear as to who he is. He'll tell Pilate, For this end I was born and have come into the world that I might bear witness to the truth. He's clear. When he said to Pilate, Pilate said, you know, I have the authority to put you to death. He says, you have no authority but what is given to you from above. And in a sense, Jesus is declaring that he is the one that has the authority of life and death. Because he's the one who came from above. He's the one who came from heaven into this world. He's the heaven-sent son of God. He knows where he came from. He knows why he's come. He knows where he's going. He knows his identity. Peter had lost sight of who he was. More properly, he lost sight of whose he was. He lost sight of the fact that he belonged to Jesus. He was not his own. He'd come to understand that after the resurrection. That he'd been bought with a price. That he was to glorify God in his body because he didn't belong to himself he belonged to another. He was the purchased possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter one time saw that clearly. To whom else shall we go? I can give myself to another. It's like a wife asking, Are you gonna leave? You're gonna leave me. No, you're my husband. I'm not gonna leave you. I swore fidelity to death. Peter swore fidelity to Jesus to death. You see, at the heart of his failure to confess Jesus before these women servants, before these people that asked him, are you not one of his disciples, wasn't so much he was questioning Jesus' identity, but he didn't understand his own. He didn't understand who he was in relationship to the Lord. See, none of us have a question as to who Jesus is. We took a test on the subject, we'd write pages and pages telling of who Jesus is. Why do we have a problem confessing him before others? I say really no different reason than Peter had a problem confessing him before these servant people. It's not so much you don't know who Jesus is, it's that you just don't know who you are. You just don't see yourself as belonging to him and you have no rights of your own. And you have a responsibility in this world to bear witness to the truth. 
I think that's going to that's what removes our cowardice is when we have a sense of our God-given responsibility born out of our identity as the people of the living God, as the children of the living God who exist in this world for such a time as this, in the midst of the mass confusion and misunderstanding of the world and why it is and how it works, we as the people of God have an answer to give to this world, and yet we close our mouths and we do not speak. And I think we need to really come to grips with that sense of who we belong to. There was a song we used to sing back in Englewood. I don't think it's in our hymnal. I posted it on my Facebook account this morning. Um, And it says that Jesus, my Lord, has loved me forever. There is no evil that from him can sever, that my soul can sever. He bled and died to to wash away my sins, something like that. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Let's not lose sight of whose we are, who we belong to, that we are His purchased possession. It's not just enough to know who Jesus is. It's important to know who we are as believers in Him how we are in union with Him, how we participate in the blessings of His salvation, that we participate in communion and union with the Son of God who loved us and who gave Himself for us. So we look at ourselves and we're a mystery to ourselves. We say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live in the flesh, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. But there's something else that enters into the picture of why it was that Peter denies Jesus. I think it's a matter of his losing sight of his identity as a believer, as one who followed Christ, that he belonged to him and he was just not on his own to just save his skin, just to avoid what was going to occur. He was the purchased possession of Jesus, and if imprisonment and death for the gospel awaits, it can't be on Peter's terms, it has to be on Jesus' terms. Jesus is in charge of all of this, and Jesus is the one who's going to determine uh, the outcome. Just as he determined his own outcome, he's the one that's going to determine our outcome. Whenever we're placed in the position of being um, persecuted or called upon to bear um, uh, uh, witness to the gospel uh, before governors and kings and the important people of the world or the people that we work with in our jobs or the people in our neighborhood that question us. But there's also the question of Peter's understanding of the source of his security and his strength. Because John adds something else that's not in the other Gospels. And you know what he adds? He adds the charcoal fire. The charcoal fire. You say, what the heck do you mean, Pastor, the charcoal fire? How does the charcoal fire enter into the picture? Again, look at how it's emphasized in the passage. 
let's see, just warming himself in verse 25. I guess the charcoal fire must be mentioned earlier. Yeah, there it is. It's in verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. He's outside. He's in the cold. He needs warmth. He needs... some source of, of, of help in the midst of a cold evening. And you know who's provided it? These soldiers have provided it for him. He's going to go hang out with them. They have a source of help. They have a source of giving Peter at this point exactly what he needs. And so he goes and he stands and warms himself together with the servants and officers who had made the charcoal fire. Why do I mention charcoal fire? Because it's mentioned again. Chapter 21. Chapter 21. And this time, it's not soldiers and officers that make the charcoal fire. At this time, it's Jesus who makes the charcoal fire. And he makes the charcoal fire as these disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and they're experienced fishermen. They spend a night fishing. Children, do you have any fish? Jesus asked in verse 5. They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Wait a minute now. How does he know? He's not an experienced fisherman. We are. We're the ones who are the fish, are the, are the ones who should know. But okay, he's the Lord, so okay. What, who, we'll humor him. We'll humor him. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. It goes on to say 153. 153. And this 153, you ask yourself, why, why does the Bible talk about 153 fish? Why does the Bible talk about charcoal fire? Why, why, is, why are these things mentioned in the way that they are? They're sort of head scratchers. Well, there's a way in which the numbers of the New Testament get translated into, um, into uh, identity with different words. A lot of times with names. Names have a, a numerical value. Um, places have a numerical value when you look at their letters in the Hebrew language. When you look at the letters of the Hebrew language, the first letter is one, Aleph is one, Bet is two, Gimel is three, Dalit is four, and on and on. They're the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They all have um, a numerical value, and they all have the significance. Uh, you'll see amongst Jews, modern Jews today, that uh, they all give um, in donations. If you ever worked in any kind of uh, business or place where they took donations from the public, you'd find that Jewish people give not $20, they'll give $18. So why in the world they give $18? Well, because of this very principle. You have a letter in the Hebrew alphabet that's the letter Chet, which is the first letter of the word for to life. You got it in further on the roof. To life, to life, l'chaim. L'chaim, l'chaim, to life is that letter is the 18th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So when they give to others a gift, it's to life they give. And they give $18 rather than 20 in commemoration of the Hebrew alphabet that begins the letter to life. So that's how things are done. 153 has some relation. I'll go into it when we get to chapter 21. 
to what we see in the book of Ezekiel in the in the picture of the visionary, visionary temple and the, the visionary city that's in the final eight chapters. You have a chapter where you have the waters that just teem from the temple and the people on the shores in a place called, I believe it's in Getty, and they're pulling in the fish, fishermen, and they're taking in fish. Here they're taking in fish. Why? Jesus is going to recommission these men for the purposes of making them fishers of men. That's their work. That's their labor. That's what Jesus sent them to do, to be fishers of men. Not just to catch fish, but to bring people into the kingdom, to bring people into the kingdom through the proclamation of the message of the gospel. I will make you fishers of men. He said to these disciples when he called them from the Sea of Galilee. Now they're back in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is making fish. He's making fish and he's boiling on a charcoal fire. He's saying, I'm the one that's going to provide you with all that you need, the resources, the strength, the wisdom, in the midst of your powerlessness, in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your inability. I am the one who will enable you to fulfill the task I call you to do. I'm the one who will feed you. I'm concerned to tell you where to get the fish from. I'm concerned to show you my power to do this, to sustain you. To uphold you, to strengthen you, to support you. I'm the source of all that you need. Now Jesus knew who his source was in the midst of his own in 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 the in the in the house being questioned by the high priest. Is we're told he committed himself to him who judges righteously. His trust was in his father. He says, all of you will leave me, but I am not alone. All of you will leave me, but I'm not alone. He was never abandoned in terms of the love and the support and the resources. He always knew was in his Father. And Jesus is telling his people, don't cozy up to the world's fires that they make, the charcoal fires they make and in the midst of the thing of the present need. You go running to them, hanging out with them, warming your hands with them when you have greater resources at hand. I think that John's telling us that with the picture of a charcoal fire that soldiers make and a charcoal fire that Jesus makes. Make him the source of your security. See in him the source of your strength. See in him the one who will provide the food that's needed. The one who will meet your needs in accordance with his own glorious riches. Look at the wealth that you possess in your Savior. What Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. The depth of the of the, of the riches of the, of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his paths his ways past tracing out and yet God is with us to guide us he's with us to teach us he's with us to support us to sustain us to supply us with everything we need out of his own glorious riches again I think one of the reasons we find ourselves in Peter's position of failing to confess Jesus, of feeling so weak in the midst of a world that just seems to deride and mock the realities of the Christian gospel, as we have not before us that living sense of our identity, who we belong to.
and we don't have before our eyes the full sense that we need his fire, not the world's. We need what he supplies and not what the world supplies. The answer is not to hang out with the world and its soldiers and its great ones and its agendas, to kind of fuse together the Christian plan with the world's plan. God has a plan that's sufficient for his people. He has a program and agenda for his people that needs no supplementation, needs no other help. It's full. And it's sufficient. May God help us to see him, our Lord Jesus himself, as our full sufficiency to uphold us and support us and secure us and to strengthen us even in the midst of the most trying trying times. He says, I will not leave you and I will never forsake you. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. We're thankful for the way in which John lends his own understanding of Jesus to the picture of the things that occurred both in the in the courtyard and also in the priest's house. And we see the contrast between our Lord having full self-possession, having a full understanding of his identity and his work, his mission in the world, and having a full sense of the sufficiency of the God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, to support him and sustain him in this time of his trial. We see Peter just at a loss, lost to know himself, lost to know where his support and strength and enablement would ever come from. And we pray, Father, that as Peter came to know more fully his identity in Christ, as he came more fully to know the fullness of the resources he possessed in Christ, may we know that from the get-go. So often we fail because we, we just don't... We just don't have a living sense of those, those things, those truths, those realities granted to us, we plead, and help us to walk in the light of our true identity. Help us to walk in the light of knowing you, the God who upholds us and supports us and who will always be our sufficiency in the midst of every situation and circumstance of life. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people. We ask you to teach us these things and to give us understanding in them as we ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.